Welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. We are going to focus on God's love today. Passage very familiar to you found in Luke chapter 15. If you are joining us just recently, we are going through the Bible, reading through the Bible. This week, you're going to be reading through the Gospel of Luke. Each of the Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, focused on a different aspect of Jesus. They're writing to different audiences. Luke, the beloved physician, as he's called in Colossians chapter 4, was a close friend and a traveling companion of Paul. He was from Antioch in Syria. And he's also the only New Testament writer who's not a Jew. He did not see Jesus personally. He carefully studied and researched all the evidence and became a, really a scholar of the New Testament, writes as an apologist for Christianity and a defender of the faith. He addresses Theophilus, which means lover of God. He's an unknown person who obviously had some acquaintance with Jesus, but maybe did not know Jesus like he should. So he writes to supply him more consecutive and accurate narrative about Jesus. It's written to Gentiles. That's why he explains all the Jewish customs when he comes to them. And he replaces some of the Hebrew names with Greek names so that the Greeks or the Gentiles would understand. The theme of Luke is that Jesus is the perfect man and a universal savior. I want to read a couple of interesting facts about Luke and then we're going to look in chapter 15. It's the most complete and scientific biography of Christ. There's detailed accuracy in Luke's gospel. Also, he emphasizes the universal grace of God. It's for Jews and Gentiles. And he also shows Christ's sympathetic attitude toward women and children and the poor and the lonely and the social outcasts. It's a devotional gospel. It gives attention to joy and praise, to singing and praying. It ends with rejoicing around Jesus. It also begins with rejoicing around Jesus. About half of the material in this book is not in the other gospels. That is, the prodigal son, the good Samaritan, and the genealogy of Christ is traced backwards. Unlike Matthew, traced from Abraham to Jesus, Luke goes backwards and goes past Abraham all the way back to Adam and traces the genealogy there in chapter 3. He gives the account, or he tells us in 323 that it goes back to Adam. Luke gives backgrounds of the John, the Baptist, and of Jesus. It's the most comprehensive of the Gospels. Luke, the physician, gives a clear uh, picture of the virgin birth. 
William Barclay said, if I could only keep one book of the New Testament, I would choose Luke's gospel, for in it I believe that we've met Jesus at his most beautiful and the gospel at its widest. He gives emphasis to the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit. He stresses people and their names. And the last of all, he gives us 23 parables, 18 of them are exclusive to Luke. They're not found in the other gospels. He records 20 miracles, and six of them are exclusive to Luke. He gives the account of Jesus on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, proving the resurrection of the body and the humanity of Jesus. You're going to like reading Luke. He also wrote Acts. So that's why we have such detail about that. Now, today, a parable that's exclusive to Luke only. One that may be one of the most beloved parables in all the Bible. Luke chapter 15, we're going to look at the parable, what we call the prodigal son, but we're not going to focus on the son. We're going to focus on the father. And so I want to begin reading in verse one of chapter 15. I want you to see the audience that Jesus is addressing. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. Isn't it interesting that Jesus was a sinner magnet? He was. Tax collectors and sinners, they're looking for somebody. But then notice the Baptists in the group. <laughs> and the Pharisees and scribes complained. That's how I know they're Baptists. Saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them. And in verses four through seven, he talks about the man who had a hundred sheep and one of the sheep left and the shepherd goes after that hundredth sheep. Leaves the 99, goes after the hundredth sheep. And then beginning in verse 8 through verse 10, he talks about the woman who lost a silver coin. It was probably in a necklace of 10 that a lot of those women wore indicating they were married and probably one of those coins came out or she lost this coin that was very dear to her and she sweeps the house and looks for it and finds it and goes rejoicing. And then this passage beginning in verse 11. Then he said, a certain man had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. And when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land and he began to be in want then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate and no one gave him anything. But when he had come to himself or he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him, had compassion 
and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this son, this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. What is your concept of God? A little boy had behaved badly all day, and when he exasperated his father, who was trying to put him in bed one night, his father told him, you be sure, be sure and say your prayers before you go to bed. And the little boy said, Dad, I, I, I want you to go away. I want to talk to God alone. Well, what have you done that you don't want me to know about, asked his father. And the boy said, well, if I tell you, you'll get mad and yell at me, but God will listen, forgive me, and forget all about it. <laughs> and then a lady was talking to her daughter who was about to get married. She was giving some advice. And her, and her mother said to her, she said, I want to give you some re advice regarding your future husband. She said, first of all, always stick up for him. Second, don't discuss important matters before dinner. And third, don't ever tell me about your arguments. Well, why is that, Mom? She said, and Mom said, because you may forgive him, dear, but I never will. <laughs> now, a lot of people have that concept about God, their experiences about God. Some people picture God as a vengeful unforgiving father waiting for an opportunity to get even. And although we may long to return home from a far country or to go meet God, some people are reluctant because they don't know what's going to be waiting for them. Am I going to face an angry God or am I going to face a forgiving God? Am I going to spend the rest of my life suffering the consequences of my sin Am I forever condemned to be a second-class citizen in God's kingdom? A.W. Tozer wrote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So what do you think about when you think about God and meeting God one day? I believe that this condemning image of God keeps a lot of people from coming to him. And maybe you're watching online today or you see this on television or you're in this very room and you feel like, well, God would never really ever be comfortable with me because I've just done so much wrong. I just can't get good enough. And deep down, we believe that God hates us because of our sin. Well, I've got some great news for you today. It comes straight from the Lord Jesus himself. First, I want you to notice the reality of God's forgiveness. Now, I mentioned these other two parables. There's three parables. And really understand the parable of what we call the lost son, you need to understand the first two. The shepherd has 99 sheep in verses 4 through 7, and one of them leaves. And the shepherd, instead of saying, well, it serves him right. If he's going to go out there, I hope he gets eaten by a wolf. But that's not the attitude of the shepherd. Well, he, gets, he, he deserves what's coming to him. 
No, instead, the compassionate shepherd leaves the 99 sheep to actively search for the lost sheep. And verse five says, and when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. Now you've got to understand the audience that Jesus is talking to. He's surrounded by tax collectors. He's surrounded by sinners. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees have this attitude. They've got this judgmental view of God. They taught that God despised sinners. And of course, they defined sinners as anyone but them. You know, they were the the religious ones. They were the ones that kept all the meticulous laws. And when Jesus came, he said, my my father doesn't hate sinners. He loves sinners. And he talks about the shepherd that goes after the one that's left. And then he uses the, the illustration that Pharisees would definitely understand. He talked about money. He said, a woman lost this silver coin, and uh, an important coin, and when she found it, verse 9 says, she called her neighbors and said, rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I'd lost. You don't hate something that you've lost. Instead, you search for it, and you rejoice when you find it. And what these two illustrations tell us is that God's attitude towards sinners is that he's looking for you. In fact, Luke 15, 10, Jesus said, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. We can't really understand this parable until we see it in the context of the lost sheep and the lost coin. All three serve to illustrate God's attitude towards sinners. God doesn't hate sinners. Instead, He's searching for them, and he rejoices when he finds them. So with that in mind, I want us to focus on verses 20 through 24 for just a moment. And I want you to see the response of God the Father. The son obviously came to his father and said, give me what you, what's coming to me when you die. I want my inheritance early. He goes out, he wastes his life, he wastes his fortune. He winds up feeding the pigs. He, he's hungry. There's a famine in the land. He's eating with the hogs. Whatever the pods are given to them, he's eating no, because no one gave him anything. He comes to the very bottom of life. Can you believe how many people are headed that way? They have all the toys that world has to offer. They have all the fame and the fortune and the prestige, and yet they're still out here in the foreign country, and they wind up out here eating with the hogs, spiritually speaking. And he finally got enough, and he came back, and he thought, well, when I come home, at least I can ask my dad if I can just be a hired servant. At least he feeds them. When you get hungry, you get desperate, don't you? Well, I want you to focus with me on the Father. And the first thing we see is his anticipation. In fact, in verse 20, it says when the son was afar off, but while he was still a great way off, his father saw him. Now, what does that tell you? It it tells you he was looking for him. When he was a dot, an unrecognizable dot on the horizon, father spotted him. 
That tells me that even though this son had been rebellious, even though he had lived a life that was un it's not what his father wanted him to do. He never wrote him off. He never got out of his mind. He was engaged in unacceptable behavior, but the father never quit watching for him. God has been watching for you. Now, those of you who've come to know Christ, he watched for you long before you came to know him. But those of you who've never come to know Jesus, whether you're watching us on the internet or whether you're watching us on television, you think, I want to come to God, but God doesn't want me. I want to tell you, God's looking for you. Listen to 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. He wants you. I've got some great news. God wants you. You also notice his affection. When the father saw his son, it says in verse 20, that he had compassion. The Greek word means a gut reaction. Now, we use the word heart to talk about the seat of the emotions, but in the ancient East, the seat of the emotions was the bowels, the intestines. You ever gotten nervous? Where do you feel it? You don't feel it in your heart. We, we've changed that. We say, well, I love you with all my heart, but they would have said it, I love you with all my gut, which that doesn't sound very impressive to you and me, but, but that's, what he was, that's what the word is. And, it, and, it, and we see this, we see this in, in Jesus. When Jesus was here, Matthew 9, 36 says, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. He saw these hurting people and he was moved. He loved them. In fact, in Matthew 14, 14, when he went ashore, he saw a large crowd, felt compassion for them and healed their sick. God is shown here to show compassion. The father hurt for his son. His son was clearly malnourished. He was starving. His son had suffered the humiliation of feeding the pigs. His son had traveled all the way with no help from anyone. He looked at his son and sees that even though his son brought on himself what he had, he still hurt for him. Regardless of the consequences he'd brought on himself, the father's heart ached that his son had been through so much pain and reproach and suffering. Yeah, was it his fault? Absolutely it was his son's fault. But his father still had compassion on him. How many people today are in the gutters of life and they're as far away from God as they can be and they probably think, well, God doesn't like me, God hates me, but God has compassion toward you in the fact that he hurts for you because he sees how you're hurting yourself. As a parent, we understand that when we see our children begin to make a mistake and it just kills us, doesn't it? And if you don't see anything else today, I want you to see this next response was his approach. 
In fact, in verse 20, I want you to underline two words. While he was a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran. And ran. It's so important that you understand the crowd Jesus is talking to and their mindset. As bad as the boy was and as simple as his choices were, nothing was more scandalous to them than for a dignified Jew to run. They didn't do that. You had to pull up your robe and you exposed your legs and it's criminals who run and need to be escaped. And, and running was for children. Dignified men did not run. Did you know that for the next 1,800 years that Middle Eastern translators were unwilling to accept that Jesus had said this, that the father ran to the son. They just could not translate it into their language that he ran. They didn't until 1860. When the Bustany Van Dyke Arabic Bible finally came out, you finally have the appearance of this father running because it was a disgrace. And if he represented God, we're sure not going to put in there that God ran. Why did he run to him? Well, obviously, like any parent, he wanted to see his son. And he was eager to see him. But I believe there's another reason that he ran. He ran to him to save him from further shame. Because if he had gotten to the town square, what would those people have said to him? And if he had seen the elders of the city, what would they have said to him? And what sort of judgment might be inflicted on him in the community first? So the father runs, he's desperate to get to the son to be able to deflect some of the shame that's already going to come to him. And what he's saying is the father is bearing the shame to save his son from any more shame. That's our God who took the shame on the cross and died for us. Suffering the shame and the humiliation that we might be delivered from our shame. Don't miss the approach. A song was written many years ago it was entitled, When God Ran. He ran to me, is what he says. Don't miss that part. And then notice his acceptance. It says, and he embraced him and kissed him. If we could relate, we could relate if the father had said, I no longer have a young son. I don't know who you are. We could relate to that. But did you know that God doesn't want retribution? He wants restoration. Amen. I read of a little first grade boy that appeared to be greatly upset when he walked into the principal's office. And he said, can I use the telephone to call my mother? The principal said, is something wrong? Can I help you? The little boy said, well, yesterday I forgot my sweater and I left it here at school. And this morning my mother told me not to come home without it. The principal said, so what? And he said, well, I can't find my sweater anywhere, so I just want to call her and ask her where she wants me to go. I'm going to tell you where God wants you to go. He wants you to come to him. 
The father met his son embracing him, showering him with kisses. He wasn't just one kiss. The way it's written is a multitude of kisses. Now think about it. His son was dirty. He was foul. He was thin, likely smelled like a pig. He was not attractive, and yet the father embraced him and kissed him. God does not care how you look, smell, or where you've been. He will embrace you. You need to come home. And then he told the servants, get the best robe. Don't miss this. The best robe. It was a picture of honor to put this robe on anything. In fact, I like what John MacArthur noted. He said, every nobleman had a choice robe, an expensive, ornate, embroidered, one-of-a-kind, floor-length outer garment of the highest quality fabric and craftsmanship. It was a showpiece. It was a garment that was so special that he wouldn't even think of wearing it as a guest to someone else's affair or wedding. It would be reserved instead for his own children's weddings or an equivalent occasions. Giving him the robe signified a greater honor than one would normally even think to confer on a son. He put a ring on his hand. It wasn't just any ring. It was a symbol of authority. It was a signet ring that was used to make wax seal impressions so the boy could make decisions on behalf of his father and his father's estate. And then he put sandals on his feet, which was a picture of sonship. Hired servants usually went barefooted. The sons had sandals, shoes. And when the father gave that boy his shoes, he was making an emphatic statement. He said, this boy is not some random hired hand. This boy is my son. And then to make matters worse to the audience, by now I'm sure the Pharisees were standing there with their mouths open. You've got to be kidding me. He had a public celebration we're going to kill the fatted calf we're going to have steak we're going to have a party we're going to rejoice Pharisees couldn't handle that you got to be kidding me he needs to do penance he needs to be put out back he doesn't, you don't need to bring him out in public after what he's done you don't need him anymore What does that have to do with you and me? <laughs> that tells me that God's looking for you. And no matter where you've been, no matter how bad you smell, no matter what you have done in your life, he's still looking for you. He still wants you. Now, You'll never feel the freedom to return to God until you fully comprehend God's attitude toward your sin. So let me talk to you just a second about realizing man's failure, the realization of man's failure. You see, what does the Bible tell us about sin and restoration? Listen carefully. First of all, God hates sin. We've got this emphasis today on grace, and I believe in God's grace. Don't misunderstand me. But it doesn't give you a license to go live like you don't belong to Jesus. 
He hates it. Listen to Isaiah 59. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. God judges the righteous and God is angry with the wicked every day. God hates sin, but he loves the sinner. Second thing, God must punish sin. Nahum 1, verses 2 and 3. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord, and the Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Oh, that's horrible news. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23 tells us. And, and God hates sin, and sin is going to be dealt with. But that's not all the story. There is a C to this. Jesus paid the penalty. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God hates it. God's going to punish it, but Jesus took it for us. Now, with that in mind, I want to finish by talking about the reconciliation that's in God's forgiveness. What what is he doing for you? I want you to grasp the extent of God's forgiveness. There's not a better place to go than Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... He has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Two things. You first see the exoneration of sin. When you're exonerated, it's made clear. You're, you're forgiven. It's no longer against your charge. It's, it's gone. Having wiped out or canceled out means to wipe away. We used to have chalkboards when I was in school. Now they have whiteboards. And you've seen those whiteboards. We've got them all over the place here. And you take those dry erase markers and you write all over that whiteboard and then you've got a dry erase eraser. Is that right? A dry eraser. Whatever. You wipe it clean. Well, you imagine your, your life as a whiteboard and you, you mark on it all the sins that you've ever thought or you forgot to do. You can't remember. You don't, if you forgot them, you don't know you did it. But you think of how dirty that board would be and when God forgives you, he wipes it clean. He didn't mark through it. He wipes it clean. So that when God sees you, He sees you justified. It's a legal term. I like to remember it this way. Just 
as if I'd never sinned. Justified. Wiped clean. God sees you through the righteousness of Jesus. Your sins shall be made as white as snow. You're exonerated. And how many of them? How many is all? How do you how you define all? What about the sins I've committed since I've been saved? He's, you're still forgiven. In fact, the second part I've already mentioned, it's the erasure of sin. And you know, in Paul's day, official documents were written on very expensive paper or animal hide, papyrus and animal hide, and they had acid-free ink was used to write and it would not bite into the surface of the paper or hide, but could easily be erased and used again. And the moment you become a Christian, God takes that list of all your sins and Micah 719 states that he will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. He washes them clean. Now before I finish, I want you to go back to verse 20. I want to show you something. I want you to notice how beautiful the wording is here. The word saw speaks of the eyes of forgiveness. The word compassion speaks of the heart of forgiveness. The word ran speaks of the feet of forgiveness. The word fell speaks of the arms of forgiveness. The word kissed speaks of the lips of forgiveness. I think Jesus wants us to know that no matter how far away you have gone, you can come back. Or no matter how far out you have gone, you can come in. Or no matter how far down you have gone, you could come up. Y'all remember when I say Tom Bodette, what is the phrase that they always used? We'll leave the light on for you. The light's on for you right now from God he's looking for you and if you've never received Christ as your savior I do not know how to make it any more clear and simple if you're watching this online or you see this on television you can respond and we'll get back to you if you're online, you hit that connect button and somebody can help you right now. But right now, if you've never received Christ and you feel like, God, why would God want me? I want you to know he does want you. Would you bow your heads with me?
Lord, I pray for those who need Jesus. That you would help them come to you, that you would knock on their heart's door, that you would draw them to you, God, that they might respond, they might come home. If you need Jesus, you ask God to forgive you. Just like this son, he said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and you. And you ask God to forgive you. And you believe in your heart that Jesus died for your sin and that he was buried and that he rose again. And you place your faith, your trust. I give you my life, Jesus. I believe that you are the way to be saved and I commit my life to you and I ask you now to come into my life and save me. God's gonna put the robes of righteousness on you He's going to call you his son and daughter. Lord, I pray for those who need Jesus today. Lord, I thank you for reminding us, those of us who've been saved a long time, just exactly what that means and how much you do love us. That, that you don't sit around wringing your hands waiting to get even with us, that you really loved us enough to welcome us home. I pray for those that need a church home, that if this is the place you want them to be, that people would feel like they belong here. It's just a center, center's hospital is all this is, and Nobody perfect, just forgiven. I pray for those that need to be baptized, like this lady today who unashamedly said, Jesus has saved me, I want the world to know. And what a beautiful picture to see somebody immersed in water, to show the, the fact that you have immersed them in forgiveness, and you've taken somebody who was dead and given them new life. I pray people would follow you in believer's baptism and be obedient. Lord, but right now, draw people to you. There are different ways you can respond. You can text the phrase living hope with no space. Living hope, no space to the number 474747. It will request some information from you, your name and how to get in touch with you. And we'll call you and talk to you about knowing Jesus. You can use the card that's in the seat back in front of you and you can write down your decision today. You can put prayer requests either way, either online or either with the text or with this paper. You, there'll be pastors here at the front to talk with you about knowing Christ. I don't know how we can make it any simpler to respond. You just need to come to the Father. Lord, we pray that people would respond to you
Thank you for taking us. Just the way we were and making us new. I pray people would come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you would like more information, to make a commitment, or to request prayer, please text the word podcast to 555-888. You can also connect with us on our Southcrest app or our website for complete worship services or to plan to visit us in person. Thanks again for listening.